Welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, everybody. What a wonderful, crazy week this has been. We are in the last week of July, 2023, and there's so much going on that we're doing a special episode today. We finished season two, but we couldn't help ourselves and we're back um, already. It is Thursday. It's actually Thursday. Goodness. Do you have the, it's the 27th, the 27th, and we are on the eve of what may be the Trump indictments, the the third round of Trump indictments. So maybe, maybe, maybe probably, <laughs> probably, possibly, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> so we didn't want to miss it, but we also didn't want to, if the, the indictments are coming down tomorrow, we didn't want to join that one with the other topics that that are really important topics that we already have today and this week. So we're doing a Thursday session where we're going to talk about Israel. And you may ask, what does that have to do with the U.S. Legal Weekly News? Um, but stay tuned to find out. Um, we're going to talk about that in some constitutional review. And we are then going to go into, we might hit the Alabama case because that was recently in the news with the Supreme Court where they were told to go redraw the maps. And they have redrawn a map. But it may still be in violation of the Supreme Court's ruling. Anyway, okay. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with the law, um, with the law inscripted as well as Tarani Law. And we have joining us our wonderful regular guest star, Dr. John R. Vile from Middle Tennessee State University. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Vile is um, an expert in the U.S. Constitution and the amending process, as well as constitutional law, the founding fathers, and a whole host of others with basically meaning the foundations of our country. And it is such a pleasure to be able to talk with you all this summer, and especially today, about what those foundations are that we have, and then how do they mirror or reflect what's happening with the reforms in Israel, and what impact that they may have for us. So before we get to that, I'm going to do a quick wine. We always have our wine um, today, and I've been practicing um, because Dr. Vile will get mad at me if I don't pronounce this correctly. Um because we spent money on a French major for this one. So. <laughs> yes, um, Dr. Vile, who's actually my father, um, did did help invest in my college education, and surprisingly, it included a major in French, a double major. So it wasn't just French, but it has been over two decades since I've graduated with said French degree and have not spoken it since. So we're gonna see how well I do. You can laugh at me or not, but today we have, um, we have a Bordeaux and it is a 2019 Chateau Rocher Calon Montagne Saint-Emilion. Now, don't ask me to say it fully in English, but that is what it is. I am going to put the label on our video for those of you who watch our YouTube video of it. Um, for those of you listening, look in the descriptions for the actual spelling of this wine and how wonderful it is. Cheers to you guys on this happy hour on Thursday. And let's get into You hear the bells ringing? Oh, are your you bells did. ringing on campus? Yes. We, for oh. those who don't know, as dean of the Honors College, 
when anyone, our undergraduates write a thesis and defend it, we ring the bells for them. So there is a thesis defense going on next door. And apparently it was successful because we're ringing the bells. Amazing. Well, we'll toast to that for sure. Well, wonderful. And thank you. Let me take a quick quick sip of the Bordeaux. Oh my gosh, that's lovely. That's really lovely. I wish of all of the wines that I could share this one with you. It's very smooth, very light, um, but also has that deep flavor of a good Bordeaux. Um, I feel like I can actually taste just the grapes rather than the wine. So that's that's delightful. Um, look in the descriptions for a full um, description of it, the actual spelling of the name that I tried to pronounce. And let's get into Israel. Tell us what is happening with Israel and how this relates to us. First, let's put something in quotations that you said before. Reform of the judiciary. Uh, reform always depends on one's perspective. And for those who have been watching the scene in Israel, there have been literally tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the streets over the past three or four months mm -hmm. protesting an attempted change in the judicial system. Um, and I guess I should describe what that is. Yes. <laughs> so, Tell us what uh, it is and what it is. Yeah. Now, let's let me start with a disclaimer. I am not an expert on Israeli politics. Sure. I'm planning to go to Israel and visit the Knesset uh, this December, but I haven't been there yet. I have read descriptions, particularly of the Supreme Court building, which is a beautiful mm. uh, structure there. Um, but this is it's fascinating for an American and might even make us feel a little superior, uh, although I would caution us not to get, <laughs> you know, let's see how the next election goes before right. we, we, we claim too much superiority. But, you know, the, the United States, one of the differences between the United States and Great Britain, which we celebrate on Independence Day, is that the British do not have and we got to qualify it, their constitution is not a single written document as our own is. Right. It consists of many documents, many precedents, many uh, enactions by parliament, but they're not all gathered together in a single spot. So, and for that reason, now, I believe... This may have changed a bit as when Britain was in the European Union. I'm not sure about that. Whether one of the reasons they withdrew was the notion that they were that they were having to abide by outside rules that they themselves didn't oppose. But traditionally in England, although they're known generally for their political stability. Parliament legally has Parliament is legally sovereign in a way that our Congress is not. Our right. Congress can adopt a law, but it doesn't go into it doesn't go into force unless the president signs it or it overturns its veto. And even when it's enforced, um, it can be overturned um, by the U.S. Supreme Court on the basis that it's unconstitutional. It's so to review. Pardon? True, right. Through judicial review. And, and of course, courts also. And here's where I'm a little unclear about the status of the new law. Our courts also exercise what's known as statutory interpretation. 
which basically means they decide what laws mean if, if the meaning is contested. So what's fascinating about Israel, if I'm understanding correctly, is they do not have, like Britain, they do not have a single written constitution. Now, they do have some things that are known as basic laws, which I take it to be that they weren't ratified in a special way like our Constitution was, but they're considered, you know, even in, in the United States, we pay far more attention to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than we do of, a, you know, legislation involving, you know, some other matter. And, uh, and there are a whole series of, you know, such, you know, Sherman Antitrust Act, you know, you think almost each decade has, has an, uh, uh, an important law like that. Yeah, what, what we consider the bigger, broader laws. Right. Rather right. than, I mean, I hate to say the term, but smaller laws or, right. or less impactful laws for, for the continuing future. In, in any event, Israel, though they've talked about it, as have the English, by the way, Neither of them have a single written constitution or a specific bill of rights. But even though that's, and by the way, they have a unique, well, we have a presidential system, they have a parliamentary system. In a presidential system, you have separation of powers, legislative, executive, and judicial. Um, the, in a parliamentary system, you have a fusion of executive and legislative powers. Because whereas our president can and sometimes is chosen independently of Congress, which is to right. say you can have a Democratic president uh, and a Republican Congress or vice versa, in, in Israel, you have in a parliamentary system, the prime minister is both, well, he's also head of, he, he's like ours, he's head of government and head of state. Right. But he is all, he's the leader of the part of the leading coalition or party within parliament, which is in Israel is known as the Knesset. It would be like speaker of the house. Pardon? Uh, he's sort of like a combination of a president and the speaker of the house, I guess you could say. And. Unlike our so couple so first difference is we have a written constitution and they don't. We have a presidential system, separation of powers, and they have a parliamentary system, which is a fusion of powers. And then if we go to a third distinction, their parliament is unicameral rather than bicameral. Now, which what means one mean? house, one house versus two houses. Whereas we, we have the House and the Senate, they right. have one they parliament. They have one parliamentary Knesset with 120 members. <laughs> and the prime minister is the, lead, is the leader, typically, of the majority party. In this case, he's, he's the leader of a majority coalition. And this coalition includes some very, very conservative, very right-wing. Uh, he, he's not in a position... Unlike that, of Speaker McCarthy, McCarthy right now, okay. where he has, you know, he is the leader of our House of Representatives, but he got there by making compromises, apparently, with all these different groups, which he has to continue to placate. Mm -hmm. 
But the fact, you know, if our if our founding fathers were to look at this system, they would laud it for being democratic. It's right. one of the few democratic uh, governments in that area of the world. Uh, and we have been allied with it largely for that reason and also for the you know, the many Jews that we have in the United States who support it for, the, for that reason as well. But our founding fathers would say first, you know, they would, they did not, they did not accept the notion of parliamentary sovereignty. Mm. So whether my own view is that our founders intended for the judiciary to exercise judicial review, that comes from a fairly close attention to the documents that surrounded the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Not everyone has come to that conclusion, but we do know that prior to that time, there were states uh, in which the judicial system would strike down a law as being contrary to the state constitution. And I think most people anticipated that it was fairly firmly established, at least by 1803, in a famous case written by Chief Justice Marshall, uh, known as Marbury versus Madison. But my understanding is, so typically in a parliamentary system, you don't exercise judicial review. But apparently, the court in Israel has done something similar, only we might say there might be some in the United States who would object to what the court is doing. They're because a little I, more proactive. Well, Almost I don't know if they've been more proactive, but they have had less textual basis for what they're doing. Sure. In other words, so let's go back again, the Constitutional Convention. Prior to setting up the judicial branch, there was a discussion, and it was highly favored, by the way, by James Madison, who's often called the father of the Constitution. He actually favored the establishment of what was known as a Council of Revision, whereby the president would be allied with leading members of the judiciary And before a law went into effect, they would actually decide whether or not it was constitutional or not. And that that was rejected. Well, let's back up. And and maybe even beyond that, not only whether it was constitutional, but whether it was desirable, whether Mm -hmm. it was reasonable or whatever. Well, those powers, in a sense, got split. President exercises a qualified veto that can be overridden. Um, the judiciary uh, is given the power of judicial review, and it can be overridden in the United States, either by the judiciary changing its mind or by the adoption of a constitutional amendment. But my understanding is what the Supreme Court in Israel has been doing is it has been judging laws on the basis of their reasonableness. Mm. Um, And that standard is arguably now it's not altogether different perhaps from a court using the due process clause of the 5th or 14th amendment saying well this this law while on its face is valid violates you know rights of criminal defendants or you know sure. whatever procedures would be but when they exercise this power, they're not exercising it on the basis of a specific constitutional grant. They're doing it apparently by fairly well accepted construction over the last 
was founded in 48, so last 70 years or so, but they don't have the same textual basis as our constitution does, so or our courts do. So Netanyahu, who not incidentally is being accused of, and I wrote it down here somewhere, I'm probably not going to be able to find it now. In any event, he's right. Fraud, bribery, uh, and breach of trust. And he's what is his official title? Pardon? Who is he, who is he in Israel? I know right, Prime uh, Minister. many of our viewers will know, but not right. everyone. He's no, Prime, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Right. Um, by the way, who was the first Prime Minister of Israel? Had ties, ties to Milwaukee. I have no idea. Oh my! I think I, I think I took you to Milwaukee and pointed this out to you when we passed the library that was I, named after this person. That was twenty five years ago. <laughs> I know <laughs> <laughs> the best years of your life. <laughs> yes, they absolutely were, but I don't. Know <laughs> okay, Golda Meir. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. First Prime Minister of Israel. There's a library there uh, in Milwaukee that's named after her because that's where. Uh, that's where she lived for a time. Excellent. Uh, okay, please continue. In, in any event, okay, I think you got me off track here. Yes. Um, the the point was, so he wants to clip the power of the court to declare laws unreasonable, mm. and he is making actually he's making his the arg the way he's phrased the argument is not inaccurate. He says it would be more democratic. He's oh. right about that. If you consider democracy to be the immediate will of the people as expressed in parliament. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, there has been a fairly recent election in Israel um, that elected a group that then chose Netanyahu uh, as their prime minister. So he's right. Uh, in the United States, of the three branches of government, the judiciary, the judicial branch is the least democratic. Now, I don't say that as a negative thing, but its members are appointed rather than elected. Right. Rather than serving fixed terms, they serve for basically, you know, during right. good behavior, which is basically for life. And this was purposeful. Uh, when it came to do laws abide by the Constitution, you don't want somebody, particularly someone who might be facing indictment, making that decision. You right. want it to be, now, that brings its own problems, uh, you know, particularly when the Supreme Court, you know, seems to manufacture constitutional rights and maybe then try to take them away again, right. uh, that kind of thing. Um, but... I think the framers, if they were looking at this situation, and to the extent that the American government has expressed an opinion, it seems to be, you know, somewhat cautious about the reforms that are being enacted. And the American framers would probably say, look, you already have a parliament that you're pretty much declaring to be sovereign. It's a unicameral branch, which typically means, you know, good thing and bad thing, right? Yes. What if our government's always frozen because we got conflicts between the two branches and, and the president, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to speed things up, if you want immediate popular will to be done, uh, 
supports get in the way of that. Right. The other hand, they are designed to give this sober second look. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, that's sort of what all the fuss is about. Uh, do we believe just if we just believe in parliamentary? And again, to my knowledge, it, it now I think the situation has changed a little bit, but you know, the House of Lords is the highest court in, of, of law in, in Great Britain. And at least for the most, through most of their history, that court has not exercised the power of judicial review. Now, what they will do sometimes is if they have a law that they can interpret in a fashion that they think is more consistent with values than what the language might actually say, they might do that. Right. And it sounds like, you know, maybe the Israeli court has sort of perfected that technique. Uh, well, this violates, you know, due process. This is unreasonable. So we're going to strike it down. So, But, you know, Netanyahu is right. If you want the immediate will of the Knesset and the prime minister to be enforced, then you don't want courts. Uh, but, you know, our own history suggests that there are many times where even knowledge of this second look Right. might deter a good bit of, you know, you, congressmen can get up and say, well, I sort of like the sentiment behind this law, but I don't think it, you know, I don't think it's going to pass muster under the Equal Protection Clause. Right. Or I believe it's, you know, I, I'd like to execute rapists as much as the next guy, but I think that's probably cruel and unusual punishment. So <laughs> right. probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> to say yeah. somebody else is going to look at this and might not like what I'm doing because we have this basis, right. the strong basis of the Constitution that is being fully interpreted through the Supreme Court. Right. And, and I, I think what is particularly troubling, and again, I'm no expert in, in, in Israeli politics, but I think what's so troubling about the situation there is they seem to be split much as we are. Uh, you know, the the majority by which Netanyahu regained the, the the prime ministership was very, very slender and okay. depended not just on popular vote, but then on negotiating with these various uh, factions there. And so what is scary is this is a situation, well, on the positive side, you always have, you know, unless you get a vote of no confidence, Parliament can go ahead and enact whatever it is they think the people wanted. Mm. But on the downside, you might have a Parliament that comes in tomorrow and reverses everything. It's sort of the in the U.S. the equivalent is sort of our the equivalent is probably that of executive orders, where presidents love to come into office and what's the first thing they do, you know, if it's a Republican comes into office following Biden, they're going to overturn a lot of his executive orders and put in their own. Uh, and it continues. And so the the content, you know, one of the traditional critiques of parliamentary government is that it tends to be spasmodic. It tends to go from sort of one extreme to the other. And, you know, our parties, you could say, also have that same tendency, but the fact that they are divided into two houses and that they do have judicial review puts the brakes maybe on some of the more extreme enactments by either party when they do capture power. 
Wow. And apologies in the background as, as people who are familiar with our show know, we do have dogs, at least on my end of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there's been a little bit of a raucous in the background. Um, they're, they're agreeing with you, with your assessment. No, oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a solid bark of approval. Very good. Okay. So, so where do you see this heading? And I, I know the qualifications, but, but do you have an anticipation of where this will end? And if so, what the impact will be? Well, here's, here's the fun part for me is the law has been adopted, basically clipping the power of the court. And so what happens next? The court examines the law. Oh, so, interesting. So this, and this is one of my favorite topics, one of my earliest writing things had to do with, you know, I do a lot on the constitutional amending process. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that bedevils scholarship in this area is the possibility that you could have an unconstitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. And could you have the court use the constitution to strike down an addition to the constitution? And I have always... First, I don't believe that I'm one of those on the side that there cannot be an unconstitutional amendment. Okay. Uh, you could have a tragic amendment that we would all deplore uh, and wish could be repealed. Uh, but in my judgment, if it's in the Constitution, the court has to enforce it. Okay. Um, but not everybody agrees with that. But look at this situation. I mean, you have so the Knesset is saying we don't. We don't want you, you no longer have the power to exercise this power, and they hear a case. What if they do exercise the power? Now, this takes us to an example that you and I discussed earlier. We get something similar when the U.S. Supreme Court hands down a decision, and those who are bound to enforce it say, we're not going to do so. We won't. And there's this case, I, I don't know if you mentioned it here or not, but this recent case in Alabama where, yes. you know, it's just a couple month or two back, the Supreme Court basically surprised people because they, they had seemed to be retreating in the area. Uh, and they still have, I think, in the area of uh, partisan uh, gerrymandering. Right. But the court looked at the reapportionment in Alabama and said, you got a quarter of the population that's African-American. You have only one, uh, one of eight, I believe it was, only one of, districts. pardon? I think it's seven districts. Okay, well, whether it's seven or eight, you only have one of all your districts that have predominantly African-American. You had another plan there that had two such districts. You need to go with that. Right. And Alabama said, OK, we agree that uh, our system wasn't perfect. Uh, here's an alternate system, but it doesn't, no longer has two majority African-American districts. So you have a kind of defiance. You have something similar, actually, in Texas, apparently. Now, I don't think we've had a defiance yet of the court. But my understanding is that the recent some of the recent measures that the Texas governor, presumably legislature, have taken with regarding to boundaries, uh, to the boundary, seem to violate international law. And if they do, that is, you know, that's if, if it's an agreement that the U.S. and two-thirds of the Senate have agreed to, 
then they're going to be, you know, ultimately, if they don't give way, we're going to be in a situation, hopefully not nearly as serious, but right. a situation like we had in the Civil War, where this, you know, one side, well, <laughs> actually, it was the northern side, who was unwilling to accept the legitimacy, well, to qualify, Lincoln said, you know, I can't make Dred Scott free if the court says he isn't free. But just because the court has said something doesn't mean we all got to we all have to go along with it. Right. It's still up for grabs as to whether, you know, we can exist as half free and half slave. Right. So. It's, you know, the, the I mean, what's interesting is despite the differences in systems, there are some real parallels here. Yeah. And, you know, traditionally, I mean, if, if for no other reason than prudence, if there were a new amendment that the court didn't like, I would say, I'm sorry. Uh, and you remember, we've had an earlier discussion about the amending process that in Coleman versus Miller back in 1939, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that issues involving ratification of amendments were political questions. And I think it would be even more so when it came to the substance of an amendment, uh, because one of the you know one of the checks that's recognized on the judicial system is a check that uh, we can overturn it. And so we, we mentioned the Dred Scott decision said African Americans are not and cannot be U.S. citizens. The Fourteenth Amendment says all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens thereof. Right. Right. Now that's that's absolutely fascinating. So. Goodness. So what happens here? That's where we're just sitting. We are. I mean, I guess the, the main thing is we have been such close allies with Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel, you know, we were the first nation to recognize uh, the establishment of Israel. Uh, we've been invo- you know, deeply involved in peace treaties there. We have proudly been able to say you know, even when their policies might have diverted from ours, but they're a democracy, they're doing it the right way, to the extent that, you know, there's sort of, there's a worldwide phenomenon right now of, and it's sort of sad in my judgment, that, you know, there have been times in history where democracy seems to be, you know, the the big wave. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and democratic republicanism, you know, not not just and, and that's been overcome, I would say, by, by what's sometimes referred to as populism. Mm. Um, but but a populism that's that's allied often with authoritarianism. That, you know, one person, whether it be, you know, Erdogan in Turkey or Putin in Russia or maybe Netanyahu in Israel somehow sort of embodies, you know, the everyone and you should give that person as much power as you can and let them go with it right um and you know to the extent that that happens that that is a departure from traditionally where the you know we've certainly had strong presidents um but even our strongest presidents weren't able to get everything that they wanted right Um, and so it makes it you know, it makes the alliance more fragile. You know, the more we have in common, you, you, you probably remember, you know, Immanuel Kant had this notion. 
Yeah, Pardon? I at least remember him. <laughs> German philosopher, right? Yes. You know, well, he, he had this theory, which has been partly borne out in history. It doesn't always work. But the theory was that democracies were more likely, were less likely to go to war with one another. Uh, and that actually also this was combined with the notion of trade. That the more trade you had between countries, the more interconnected they were, the less, you know, the the higher the risk were of conflict. And so they'd be less likely to engage in it. And so. Well, isn't that kind of what we've been doing with Russia is the idea has been because we're trade allies, that if we do these sanctions on trade, that that will cause well, to have these conflicts. <laughs> I think that's no, it's a little that's a little something different there. We're trying to use trade as a kind of, you know, something short of war to induce somebody. But the 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 main argument is that the more democratic, you know, more hopefully the people are less willing to go to war than their rulers are. And you do see some of this right now in Russia where, you know, there seems to be a nascent, you know, movement against against the war in in Ukraine, just basically because I don't think it's in in Russia's best interest. Sure. Um, So, you know, it it, it makes it harder, I think, for us to justify the kind of support we've been giving Israel. Again, partly depending on, you know, how what, what does the court do? Does the court actually do they have some way of modifying this law that would you know, would stick or, you know, how permanent is the government? The, right. They've had a number of elections that, you know, we, we've we always consistently had one election every four years for president uh, in parliamentary, you know, particularly in countries like Italy, uh, Belgium, when was it Belgium or no, Netherlands right now, the government has recently fallen over the issue of immigration. Um and so that could change the dynamic a bit too. Sure. Sure. Goodness. Okay. That's that's a lot going on. Thank you for explaining a lot more of it so that that me as as well as many of our listeners and watchers can really understand a little bit better as to what's happening and why it's so monumentous and what it means with regard to their countries, well as what's happening with ours. And I, I think that goes into, like you were saying, we were talking about the Alabama redistricting is what happens there. It's it's who defies the constitution. And they, they don't have the constitution, like you've said. Right. It's, it's more of a basis of a series and set of documents. But who defines, who has that final say? Right. Which power has that final say? Um, and you, you know, the traditional discussion, Federalist 78, was that Congress has the power of the purse, President has the power of the sword, the power of enforcement, right. commander in chief, and then the, the power that maybe was underestimated, you know, all the court has is the power of judgment. But to the extent that people recognize basically that you know somebody has to be the final interpreter of the law right and we recognize that as going with the courts then you know that's the kind of dilemma that that israel is facing right now right and as far as our own what does happen with this new alabama redistricting where they redrew it 
They went back just like the Supreme Court said, and they redrew it, but there's still only one district instead of two. So what happens now with ours? I don't know. Okay. Uh, wow. I mean, my, my guess is you, you, there will be another suit challenging this. One of the tricky things about elections, and I'm not, again, I'm not an expert in election law, but the closer you get to an election, the less, the more reluctant courts are to intervene because they really don't want to influence who's elected. You know, they want to make right. sure that the, 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 the process is set up in a fair fashion, but the longer, you know, the closer it gets to the election, any solution they propose could sort of throw a monkey wrench into what's happening. So I, I don't know if if the state will get by with this. You know, there there were some there have been some prominent cases, some death penalty cases in the past where the court has said you can't do it, and the state went ahead and executed somebody. So you know, then what? Then what do you do? Right. <laughs> you sort of stuck with it. What do you do? Okay, well, that will be very, very interesting. But Dr. Vile, thank you so much for joining us and for a lovely, lively conversation. Catch you guys next time on the Legal Weekly Wine.